episode 215 of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. Thrilled you're here today. This will be a pretty quick intro, only because my cats are running around the house, and one of them just walked in, and I, see, I told you, I get the sense it's going to be a little loud and crazy in here, so I'm going to get to the intro Get through this as quickly as I can. You know I'm Eddie Cohn, host. Come on, Leo, stop it. Stop. He's going crazy. Very professional here. My uh, cat is taking over the show, Leo. Yeah, I'm Eddie, host, producer of the show. Thrilled you're here. (laughs) Leo's excited you're here too. God, he's very vocal today. I can just tell. He's just in one one of his moods. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy listening to a old man talking to his cat, head over to iTunes, write a review, share this show with your friends. Um, Yeah, it's it's a great talk. I welcome my friends I've known for probably about 25 years now, Evan Beagle to the show. It's the second time on the show. Our first talk was actually one of the most downloaded episodes And I think it's because we have this way of listening and thinking and contemplating some very challenging topics. Uh, We did that on the first episode, and we do it again today. This time touching a bit on artistry, creativity, and we both just watched. I just finished uh, Stranger Things. I think when he and I spoke, we were both sort of in the middle of the fourth season. But we talk about violence in film, society, and how... Uh, Violence may or may not affect children. Uh, We talk about parenting. Uh, Evan's a father of two boys. And I also like the way that he listens. It's it's interesting. I don't know. Are are you aware of people in your life where you talk to them? And can you tell when people aren't listening? Is it something that you're aware of? It's, It's sort of one of the themes of many of my show, where I talk about the effects of technology and social media, and I think we're all being tricked into thinking that it's just this beautiful, euphoric utopia that it's creating, and and maybe it's actually uh, creating more harm than good. I'm not sure. You know, I I just really personal, I'll personalize it with a quick anecdote. I've been home all day playing the guitar, recording a new song, and I was so excited about it. I thought about posting a video about it on Instagram. And maybe because I was sort of in that headspace of thinking, oh, I did something to celebrate it. Let's post it on social media. But I I resisted. I I didn't do it. And I, I think because there's some intimacy, there's some privacy, why do we need to post everything on social media? I'll leave you with that question. It's just, it's something that I really think a lot about. Uh, and I guess to my original point here with Evan, you know, I think he's a great listener and, and it made me think about the people in my life, the ones that know how to listen. Is it something, it's something that I think about and I was just curious if it's something you're, that you're aware of. Do you talk even if somebody isn't listening or do you sort of, you know, become a bit quiet? Do you stop talking or do you just not care whether somebody's listening or not? You're just blabbing away. Is listening not even important to you? I'll leave you with that deep question. You know where to find me on social, at Eddie Cohn or the Spiritual Spiral Podcast. 
you know about my new book. If you don't already, I, I have a new book that's out. It's on Amazon, SSAFY, or you can go to SSAFYoga.com. All my music's on Spotify. Any questions, you know where to reach me, at Eddie Cohn. Thanks again, Evan, for taking the time to speak to me. We actually, oh my gosh, I, I'm so happy I remember this. I end today's show with a song that he and I recorded and produced probably almost 20 years ago. So get to end the show with that. It was really fun and exciting to listen to that song again. Gosh, I haven't, I haven't listened to it for quite a while. Um, so that's it. Evan, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show. As always, thanks to you for listening, supporting, and being a part of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral podcast. have a low you always have a low voice blessed with a low voice yeah let me just let me add a little eq are you sure the high end in your hearing is still intact <laughs> probably not look i had to show you this look what i i saw this in my uh, closet about three weeks ago oh look at that yeah right yeah for for many reasons i think i've been uh, i've been really I think might be closing in on 50. Um, been thinking a lot about like, you know, just getting older and um, my time is limited and um, like spending, spending it as much as I can just doing things that I love. Um, I've picked up golf again. I know you used to play or maybe you still do. Oh, I do, man. We should play. I'd love like to. I, yeah. I'm going to Tucson next Saturday, I'll be there for a week. So maybe sometime after that. Um, where do you play? But um, I'll mostly up here, like close by where I live, but I'll go anywhere to play because I don't have any golf company. Like I'm mostly out there by myself, which I don't like. I don't like playing golf by myself, but I'm just preparing for later in life when I really want to just spend a lot of time playing golf. So yeah. I've been working really hard at it for the last, um, I don't know, I want to say like, 18 months or so, like since mid pandemic, yeah, I really started, I decided that I was going to like take up golf again. Yeah. It's, it's similarly to you, but like over the last year and a half, I just started to play and, and, um, yeah, it's just, it's, there's a lot of great courses out here, you know? It's, oh yeah. Yeah. Fun. We're very, we're very lucky. And, and, you know, Arizona, I played with my dad about four months ago. It was like $200 to play 18 holes. And here in L.A., Rancho Park, you know, you could play for 30, 40 bucks. It's, it's crazy. So um, I'm down, man. Yeah. No, um, like I'm I said, down. I don't have any golf company. So you're the first person I've talked to that huh. I know who actually plays. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting <laughs> like playing by yourself because, you know, that I go out and play by. I'll occasionally play with a friend of mine over at Shoal. Uh, but I do go out by myself. And it is sort of. It is amazing how your play, I'll speak for myself, my play and my experience is often, is influenced by the people I play with. Like I, I about two months ago, I played with um, a, a three, another group of three, and they were probably the worst golfers I've ever played with. And I literally walked off after two holes because 
I'm not I'm not great, but if you can't get to the green within eight holes, eight shots, I'll give you one or two holes. But I could tell all of them were just hacking away. And I, I just, you know, I, I can't be playing with those types of people. Whereas, you You're know, like a jerk, man. Oh yeah, my I, know, God. I know. But a few days ago, I played with these guys and one of them was was probably a scratch golfer. And the other two were probably, you know, mid 80s. Uh, so they were better than me, but it it does make you want to play better, and it just it it adds it makes the experience more fun. Yeah, there's nothing more fun than playing with really good golfers, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, the reason why I don't play golf with people is because I don't. I'm like you. I'm very picky about my golf company. Like yeah. very picky. Yeah. You know, if I were Joe Rogan, um, I wouldn't be thinking about this thought, and that is. You and I could talk like I have an issue with Joe Rogan. My only issue is is that um, three hours worth of podcasts. I I don't think three. I don't think people listening. I don't think millions of people listening to three hours worth of of, of a podcast three times a week is good for productivity in our culture. Like he he creates so much convert so many conversations that are so long and very often. They're literally shooting the shit about, you know, nothing. And my, I guess my point is, is that you and I could talk for, you know, three, four hours and I could publish the podcast, but so much of it could be just, you know, we're talking about golf, like, about golf or movies. <laughs> okay, we could change the subject. No, no. Like, I, I, this is, see, this is the problem. Like, my, I don't know if it's a problem. My brain really thinks about, like, releasing something into this world. Like, people can't sit still. They're doing two or three things at once. Uh, I, I feel like I have about an hour when it comes to a podcast. Even the songs that I write, they're like less than three minutes now. It's sort of like, I, I, I don't know if it's appropriate, but I do feel like a lot of creators, like the executives at Netflix and Hulu, they're, they're thinking, uh, this show you're writing, you need to, it needs to be done in like six episodes uh, because people aren't willing to give it 10 episodes or even 18 episodes like they used to like four or five years ago. If you've noticed, like the content is just sort of like shrinking and shrinking. And I think it's because people think about the world. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I was just thinking about Stranger Things and no spoilers because I haven't I haven't finished watching. Yeah, I just started watching yeah, I haven't finished, but I, I do know that the episodes are getting longer. And then I heard yes. from somebody that like the last couple episodes are like really long, like an hour and a half, two hours long. And I'm thinking, oh, so they're taking down the number of episodes, but they're just making them longer now. Um, hmm. Like, I don't know if that's good either, but we'll see. You know, I haven't gotten to those episodes yet, you know. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to pass judgment too quickly but that's one thing i noticed is that yeah the episode counts are coming down but they seem to be getting longer let me ask you a question that this is i've just thought of i literally just watched the first episode of this fourth season of stranger things is that where you're at i've watched more than one episode okay but yeah but but yeah i'm in the fourth season so we did a focus group a few months ago we were we were we were having a hard time recruiting kids that watch Stranger Things, like the clients. I think I well, I can't say who. how old were you trying to. Well, remember? here's the thing: they wanted eight, nine, ten, and eleven year olds. And I so was my son. Oh yeah. Well, here's my point. So I was just I was really struck by that first episode and how brutal it was. Yeah. 
And so I, I, I know this can sound very nefarious and very evil and like malevolent, but the creators of that show for three seasons have created a very pretty family-friendly uh, show. And, and, and to me, this... So you've got kids that are hooked on this show because they've watched the first few seasons, and they are dying to watch it. And then parents potentially are watching that first episode, and I do wonder if they're having conversations at home, arguments with their kids because their kids have loved this show, and then bam, and I was even reading some of the reviews of this season, they're saying that it's much more horrific and, and graphic than the other seasons, and, and I don't know if there's any you know malintent or this nefarious intent from the Duffer Brothers or Netflix, but I, I just find it interesting that that's what I've seen. Yeah, no, there's no question um, that this season is another level up from the past few seasons, but there's no way that the first three seasons I would have shown to my eight-year-old or my nine-year-old or my 10-year-old. My youngest son's 11 right now, and we finally convinced him to watch Stranger Things. So he's been binging the first three seasons, and he's on season three now. Mm -hmm. And I think he's pretty used to it, And but... Yeah, I'm still thinking, hmm, when when he watches that first episode of season four, like, is he going to, like, feel the same way about this? Like, are we going to hear from him? Should we even let him? Yeah. But he's 11, so it's probably okay, but eight, nine, ten, no way. I, it's, not, it's not for them. Not only that, I think the intent of Stranger Things, there is such a strong nostalgia factor to it. And the only way you're going to understand that is if you're an adult. So I still think that it's was more, the conception of it was more for adults right from the get-go, even though it was a little more family friendly than like season four, let's say. Yeah. But I still don't, but I still don't see an eight, nine or 10 year old getting into even the first three seasons or understanding enough to care about it or I don't know. Yeah, but, this is, but when you sort of um, throw or thrust young, cute kids and they're the main focus of the show, that instantly is going to create curiosity from, from children, I think. And they're going to think, oh, you know, these kids are in middle school or high school um, so I think yeah, it's, just, right. I think it's, right. it's just, I think it's very precarious and I, I don't know, Evan, I've been really thinking a lot about influence and, you know, my mom was very strict about me watching R rated movies when I was 10 and 12 and 13, 14. And, and, and I, I kind of questioned it when I was a kid, but now I, I don't know how much you think about it, but it's just, I, I do think the exposure that kids have now, be it, you know, unlimited porn on their phones, unlimited shows on Netflix and Hulu, and now they can say the F word and the violence in film and television now is so exploitive. And I'm not anti-Quentin Tarantino. He's he's an idol of mine. Uh, but I just, I think this is a very, I think, challenging landscape for, I, I guess my point is, it any is it any one... The pie charts say that violence is 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 because of you know bad mental health, um, being bullied, um, easy access to guns. But but it's it's interesting. And Bill Maher said this. It's like Hollywood doesn't want to talk about the influence that they potentially have, you know, um, on on our culture because of because of uh, 
violence in, in film. It's, it's something I think about. Yeah. Yeah. As a parent, I think about it too. Um, yeah. I just don't know what, to what degree of a role it actually plays um, in those areas and in influencing children. Like, because my children, like they have access to all that stuff. They've got, they're both, you know, full access to the internet. Um, you know, they have their video games and they play those and they're violent. My son, older son is pretty immune, I would say, to uh, violence in shows. Like he started watching Arrow like many seasons ago. He's 16 now, but this was probably back when he was 10 or 11. He started watching Arrow and it was on TV. So mm-hmm. Joel and I didn't think anything of it. We just let him watch it and then i was like i was like i was actually practicing yoga in the bedroom and he was in the bedroom watching uh episode and i was like finally getting exposed just to the sound of like what was going on on the show and i like i was like man this sounds like really violent and i go like to watch and sure enough like it's like violent and i wasn't <laughs> expecting it and i was like this is tv yeah <laughs> it was like one of those moments where because I had not watched all that much TV. Like at at that time I was watching movies, but I I wasn't like hooked on any shows or anything like that. Maybe I watched like a show on HBO, but I don't consider that to be regular TV. That's HBO. Right. So, but I was just surprised by the level of violence and it didn't really seem to affect him. And I don't know if it was because he was used to it or not. Um, So he doesn't, like he doesn't have any, like he's entertained by it, but he doesn't seem to be affected by it. And then over the years, I've shown him horror movies and things like that where I've thought they were intense and he was like bored and wanted stuff that was more intense. Yeah. But then again, he's also a person that knows the difference between reality and television. And he knows it so deeply. And I don't know if it's because who, who I don't know how, I would love to give ourselves credit like as parents, but there's way more stimulus out there than just, just the parents. There's, there's way more things that go into the wiring of a human being. And I don't know what they are. Like, I don't know like what the specifics are. I guess what I'm trying to say is he's exposed to all those things and he loves paintball. Like he goes, loves going out there and competing like on a paintball field, like hardcore paintball. But at no time, would he like consider shooting up a school, you know what I mean? (laughs) Or like robbing a liquor store or what, or getting into like serious, serious trouble with the law, killing somebody, beating somebody up, all degrees of violence in reality, there's just no way. Um, So how these kids are wired, um, I think there is more that goes into it than we can possibly understand and i think it's pretty fashionable to blame uh like tv shows video games other things like the internet for influencing a child to do something they wouldn't otherwise do um so i don't know where the line is to be honest i think it's important to make sure that your kids are exposed to like the realities of life yeah because you don't want them to not be street smart and you want to protect them from things as well until they're ready. 
And I think it's about when they're ready to understand what these things are. Like that's a really important distinction. So let's let's take like what's going on in Ukraine, for example. Like, how am I going to explain to my 11 year old or when he, when this all started? I think he was had he turned 11 yet? Yeah, he was 11. I wasn't really sure how to explain to him like what was going on in Ukraine, which would just be based on my limited understanding anyway, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But how to have the conversation because he hears about it. But how do you have that? conversation or like you know the office of the president and this these polarizing conversations around the different presidents of the united states like having those conversations with them just not sure because the context like isn't quite there so how do you how do you talk about that with somebody who doesn't have any context or understand the risk is is that they hear different things they're watching youtube wherever they get their information um, these polarizing opinions about this stuff through commercials and other messages that they're putting out fully knowing that there's like young people watching this stuff. Yeah. Um, and we'll get questions and we're just like, Hmm, where'd you, where'd you hear about that? Or where'd you see that? Oh, I, I saw it on YouTube. And I was like, Oh, what show were you watching on YouTube? And it's some like gamer or something or, or, <laughs> right. or some, I can't remember the names, but some influencer, you know, in the gaming world and the commercials that show up are, seemingly like not quite in context with like how to like excel at Minecraft. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, so they're pumping in this information, uh, knowing who the audiences are and these audiences don't have any context around what's happening. So they're formulating some sort of opinion or disposition on this information. And as parents, we're, we're taken by, we're often taken by surprise at what we hear from our kids that they saw on YouTube, but they're coming at it from questions. Um, I know I'm getting getting off the topic or the question uh, that you asked or what or what you raised, yeah, but, but you, it all goes sorry. it all goes back to. I'll just say this last point. Yeah. It all goes back to just how much of an influence, negative or positive, do these things have on our kids and influence their behavior? Um, I, I just don't know how to answer it. Like, I don't, I don't know. I just know that we're really lucky because we know that both of our kids are making really good decisions despite all this stuff. And like I said, while I'd love to give us credit as parents, there's got to be more to it than that well, scientifically. This is the point in connection with exactly what you just said. I think parents have, and I don't mean this in any slight to you, you're a great guy and I'm sure you're a great parent, but I do think parents have less credit or can take less credit now than ever. And I think it's because kids' exposure, unless you know they're a Quaker or a Shaker or something, their, their, their exposure to so many uh, different mediums and, and content is just gargantuan compared to when you and I were kids. I mean, it was very simple to like, our parents had so much more control over the environment that, that you know, we were raised in. And outside, you know, outside of really the only influence was, you know, our teachers and our kids at school and maybe after school band practice or wherever. It was such a small group of uh, potentially toxic influence that could sort of corrupt our mind in some sort of way. And not to say that, you know, YouTube and all these things automatically corrupt, but um, I, I, you know, you bring up a great point. I, I don't know. Um, yeah. How do you explain then? Yeah. How my two kids ended up like so far anyway, in not just unbelievable shape, intellectually, socially, academically, 
in every respect, essentially. Um, like, how did they end up that way despite our, like, who, like, what are the stimuli that, that contribute to their ability to make good decisions and when they don't understand something to come and ask, like, what fosters that type of thinking? Um, yeah, that's a good, that's a great, it, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And again, I don't know what the answer is. We do the best we can as parents, but you, one thing you're factually correct about is that we have less control over the environment. No <laughs> question about it. However, the difference that that makes, don't know. Because if my kids are proof, our less control over the environment has actually played out pretty good for us. So I don't know what that is. And when it doesn't play out well for parents, kids, families, like what is, what's the stimulus going on there? Like what's responsible for the wiring in those kids' minds and the decisions they're making? And I know I, know I used a very, you know, like the worst of the worst, like shooting up a school as an example. Like that's, that's like one far end of the spectrum because it's very prevalent now in society. Like this is, I, I can't remember how many years ago Columbine was, but from that point forward, it has been this progression of more and more gun violence, right? In schools, with young people, against kids, against innocents, like you name it. It's just been increasing, or I don't know if it's always been there and it's just, just becoming more magnified, I don't know. But it seems like it's just been exponentially increasing over time. So the question, that's like a one end of the spectrum. And then the other end is, you know, a kid that goes out and is constantly getting into trouble with the law, but is not killing anybody. But making, what I'm saying is making bad decisions over and over. Yeah. Like make suboptimal decisions repeatedly, not learning from their mistakes. Um, maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe some kids' brains are wired to learn better from their mistakes than others. Like, I, I have no idea. And maybe it really has nothing to do with the parents at all. In fact, the parents could be horrible people and the kid could decide, my parents are horrible people. I don't want to be like that. And they end up great because they go in a different direction because their influence is so bad. They want to like yeah. move away from that. That's possible as well. So I don't, again, I don't know the answer. I think so much of life and, and sort of the way it unfolds is, is, is really just luck and timing. I, I will say, though, you did bring up a point that I think is important that I think now adults are having trouble with. And I think if parents, again, I'm speaking out of the clouds here since I don't have kids, but I think if, they're, if kids are shown that there are consequences to their actions, be it good or bad, I think that's an incredibly important lesson. Like, I don't know how one teaches that to kids. Uh, but but even as adults, you know, I think, um, and they may seem mysterious, but there are consequences as an adult if you are not eating well, if you sit on your ass and watch television. I mean, there there are collective time con uh, consequences, I believe, to all of our actions. I think we are all connected, and that's why I talk about the impact of tech. And, you know, I may stay off my phone all day. But the guy driving next to me is so addicted to his phone that he's driving down the 405 and he, he's got to respond to the text while he's driving. I mean, I think and there are consequences to that behavior. I, I, I don't know. I think strangely, um, and I don't know if this is promulgated by like the news media or leaders or teachers or, you know, parents are so busy, but it does feel like um, it's like. People just want to do whatever they want. 
And I, I don't think that's a good behavior, be it kids or adults. And I think, I don't know, speaking to your kids, is that, am I speaking out of my ass here? Or, or did you guys have a discussion about consequences? Is that? Oh, yeah, all yeah. the time. I don't know. I think that's an important, I think that's one of the most well, important. It, it is, but I can't, it absolutely is. But I don't know if like so-and-so child who is having a really difficult time making bad decisions, getting in trouble, getting poor grades, not performing to their potential. Like, are those parents all not having those conversations with their kids? Like, is that the answer? Like, I doubt it. I tend to doubt it. So, but to answer your question, yeah, we of course have those conversations all the time. We don't reward bad behavior. We reward good behavior. It's hard for me to imagine that it's that that binary, meaning for all those kids out there that are doing poorly than the average, that means that the parents on average are having less of those conversations. I'm not sure. Like, yeah. I'm not sure what the correlation is. And I, I, don't, I don't know. You know, we definitely have people we know with kids and the kids are varying degrees of success in all those different areas that I mentioned. Um, and the parents in all cases seem like wonderful, wonderful people. Yeah. And we observe the parents like not rewarding bad behavior and rewarding good behavior, you know, when we're around to observe such a thing, but we can't, as parents, we can't like judge. Yeah. It's like, can't tell somebody how to raise their kid. I mean, it's like you're not in their environment or their world most of the time. So I don't know, man. It's it's a tricky one. I just, I always go, I, I always get a little skeptical though when the immediate blame goes to access to content. Hmm. Yeah. Because I don't know how much of that is a contributing factor or whether it's that plus a combination of other things. Yeah, but here's, okay, last point in this area. This is why I have trouble with um, the entertainment industry because because they don't show consequences, like real consequences. If Keanu Reeves in, in some show is just like bulldozing and shooting 10, 15, 20 people, you know, we don't see all the funerals. We, we don't see like their spouses crying. You know, so often infidelity uh, just like happens, it, like it's a joke on in television and, and movies. I, I don't know. I think there's, there is something here about how movies and television don't show the consequences of the onslaught of violence. And um, I, I don't know. I think it, it it's a completely... Uh, because, because consequences, I guess, are boring to show. It's not sexy to watch consequences on a movie or television show. I don't know. I love the show Snowfall, but it, there is sort of like you see people getting blown blown to shreds, and you don't see like oh the, this kid's mom crying, and you don't see like the funeral, and it, it just it all just sort of happens, and we just sort of like move on. I don't know. Right, but that's no that's no different though than it's always been, right? It's always. It's, it's entertainment. Yeah, like I guess. Are, I guess you're people right. People are watching it for entertainment. I get you know? Yeah, I guess. Speak, if if the violence and the gore is getting worse, and be, and it's getting worse and more graphic because, um, like we're we're becoming immune. Like, like it's almost like we need that now to be to feel something because, um, it it needs to be. 
uh, pornographic in nature in this weird sort of way. I, I don't know. It's it's. I, I don't have any explanation, of course, but I, I just think because real life has consequences and we don't see it in film or television. You're right. We never. I guess we never did. So, um, but yeah, the, this, it's it's. You talk about the distinction between real life and television. I just I think I'm a little more glass half empty because I do feel like if you live in the digital entertainment world, um, I just wonder if sort of that lifestyle ends up sort of seeping into your brain into sort of the analog lifestyle and you don't know how to distinct the two or make the distinction. Yeah, I just I think where I I disagree with that notion is just that as the catalyst um, for the bad for not having, I, I don't think the distinction between real life and violence, for example, seen on television and shows, movies that are designed for entertainment. Um, I don't think that's what causes a human being to lose sight of reality mm. to the point where it influences a decision that would be deemed as bad for that reason. Like, I don't, I don't see like the synergy between those concepts. What I do see synergy between is that if a child in their young age is either abused or mentally or physically, or if they are not given enough of meaningful attention from the individuals in their life that they're depending on at such a tender age, I think that and I'm just hypothesizing, has immeasurable effects on the way the brain wires itself as it's maturing. And I think that more than any piece of content hmm. will lead to dysfunction at all levels than simply watching too many violent movies, TV shows, games, etc. I think there's something about the human interaction uh, that causes that like wiring to go bad, so to speak. And again, we're talking about different degrees. Just of course. Kid who, gets, kid who gets bad grades, but is otherwise great to kid who shoots up a school. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, yeah. it's, I, I think it has more to do with that stuff, but I, I don't know, know for sure. I, I obviously, I don't, I don't know. To change the subject a bit, I also I also thought about you. Hey, Nelly, I thought about you because um, I remember when we started recording. First of all, just a little backstory. I was a pretty insecure before I met you. I was a pretty insecure musician, singer songwriter. Like I knew that I was creative. Uh, I started writing scripts. I played the piano when I was really young. Um, but I think I, t having a, a, a pretty famous family member doing well in music, I, I kind of felt like, how do I, it just felt like music was something I should stay away from. So that's why I started doing film and television. Um, because it was the, the comparison, and I was even hard on myself. Um, but then there was like some people slowly in my life 
in college, and I was a late bloomer to, to sort of the structure of songwriting, who, who, who would say to me, you know, you're, you're a really good singer. And I had never heard that before. And, and I was really shy about my singing. I, I spoke to a friend of mine a few weeks ago who I knew in high school. And he came over to my house and I started playing the drums. And he's like, dude, why, why doesn't anybody at school know that you know how to play the drums? Or why? I started playing the piano and all this sort of stuff. And, and so I, Steve Meyer, our, our, friend, our mutual friend, introduced me to you. And, and I just, I was really thinking about like how important it is, you know, being around you gave me confidence and, and you know, meeting Bruce. And uh, I remember like Kong or what was his last Steve? Kong, yeah. Kong, Steve yeah. Kong. And uh, because it's just, it's weird. It's like, it, I feel like it hasn't been till like the last five years, six years where I actually um, feel confident about, you know, being an artist. And, 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 but that can certainly change tomorrow. I, be, I mean, I could put out a song and it just sucks. It's, it's weird. It's, it's sort of, it's just a strange, it's like you want to get good feedback and I think it can be healthy, but I don't know. I guess it, it's just, it's confusing. I'm not really even asking a question, but I, I just have been really reflecting a lot about um, being in the studio with you. Um, I remember also listening to A Rush of Blood to the Head from Coldplay. Like that was such a, I think, you know, being in the studio, but having sort of like this milestone record come out at the same time uh, was, it's it like inspired us. And, you know, the smile just put out this record right now. And and I'm just thinking how much different it is to have like this amazing record come out now compared to back then. There's a lot here that I'm sort of, sort of trying to vomit out. But I, I've just been really reflecting about um, creativity, uh, being inspired, getting confident, and just sort of like this, the 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 um, the juxtaposition or how different it was then as opposed to being now. Right. I know a lot there. It's just things I'm thinking about. Yeah. Um... Yeah, you talked about um, getting inspired, and um, yeah, remembering back to that that time. You know, I know that for me, um, during those days, I definitely had less responsibilities. You know, I didn't have any children, um, and I was pursuing strongly at the time a career in music. Uh, recording music, making music. Um, although I, I realized back then that making a living was going to be easier for me uh, from the recording music side of things and providing that as a service to other people was a way to make money. Yeah. Um, and I found that I enjoyed, you know, working on other people's music too, because I also was a bit insecure about my own artistry and, it was an easy way to defer that insecurity to work on somebody else's stuff because that that pressure wasn't there, you know. So interestingly for me, um, I didn't put nearly as much pressure on myself as an artist or as a creator when I was working on other people's creations. I put pressure on myself for other things like yeah. to yeah. help it sound good and make comments about the arrangement that I thought would improve things or, you know, share a point of view on a part and whether it worked or whether it didn't, you know, and that kind of thing. I, I felt more comfortable in those areas than like putting myself out there 
with my own song or, you know, composition. Um, but that's actually, you know, something that I struggle with even now is like the notion of motivating myself or getting inspired enough to sit down and write something myself. Yeah. Even though there's plenty of evidence that if I do that, like the results can be good. Like I've done that before and I've gotten paid to do it or I've done it before. And, you know, a organized uh, area of contemporary music decides to program it into their concert and it gets like a bunch of performances by like a live ensemble. You know, that doesn't happen to just anybody. And every time I've done it, it seems to have good results, like I said, but it doesn't, it hasn't really changed the fact that it's like, hmm, you know, should I really, is this like the best use of my time? Like I want to be creative, but is there a way for me to, to find that creative outlet by doing some other things? And I've recently found a creative outlet in learning to play the guitar because it's something that I don't have to like worry about performing in front of somebody because I'm like a beginner and I'm like not good. And I couldn't do that anyway. So there's like a pattern that I'm finding within myself that I'm really trying to examine around what you said first, which was insecurity of, you know, being an insecure artist or being insecure about your creativity. And what's funny is you could have evidence of good results and it doesn't seem to change that insecurity. Um, I keep like kicking the ball down, down the road by saying, I'm going to learn how to play the guitar. I'm going to get good enough at it to where I can add that to my creative endeavors because later in life, I'm going to create a bunch of stuff just for myself. Yeah. Like that kicking the ball down the field a little bit. And I think I've had this conversation with you actually before, not, not too long ago where, where, you know, it's like, Hmm, I've got a lot of ideas, but do I really want to sit down and flush these out? Like, again, is that conversation, is this the best use of my time? Well, you're, you're bringing up something that I think about a lot. Well, I used to be all about this idea of inspiration. Like I've been very inspired the last uh, few weeks playing the guitar and I've come up with like 20 new sort of like demo ideas on my phone. Uh, but, and I was listening to another podcast where Sharon Van Etten, a singer songwriter was talking about this. The inspiration actually, if we're lucky, is kind of the easy part. The hard part is taking these sort of ideas and, and sort of uh, melodies and, and making it something because it's something I'm, I can't speak for you, but it's, it's exhausting to, to take these ideas and, and fine tune them and, and make the verse and the chorus. Yeah. But you know, what's interesting. I, it is no question. Inspiration is the easy, easier part. But if, if you're, if your results, like when you put it out, if you're finding that you're getting a good result, you're proud of yourself, you feel that sense of creative release and you put something into the world to your point that's meaningful, that people are responding to, which I think is the best result you can get is when is when other humans respond to your creativity. You know, that sharing, it's just like sharing anything else. It feels feels really, really good. Right. Mm -hmm. But then why do certain folks, myself included, choose to spend that same amount of time doing other things, which are also really hard? Golf, for example, it's like, okay, I spend probably, I don't know, four hours a week, let's call it five hours a week working on my golf game. I don't spend four or five hours a week like 
learning to play the guitar, even though I just told you my plan for later in life is to get decent enough at the guitar so that I can like make music compositions and play guitar on them and have guitar be a part of like my aesthetic and that whole thing when I've been a keyboard my whole life. Yeah. I'm spending more time working on my golf game. I mean, it's close, like the number of hours, but still it's more time on golf than that. And when I put it like that, I even question myself and go, why am I doing that when I get such a like rush and I get such a great feeling and such a sense of belonging and sharing with the world when I put out stuff that's creative, that gets a response that I've had evidence of over and over and over again. It's insecurity. Like for some reason, I am way more insecure still as an artist, as a piano player, as a musician, than golf. And golf is also hard. So what is it? Is it because I'll never be on the tour and I know that? Or is it because there's like some kind of failure thing in there? Absolutely. Because I didn't like make it, quote unquote, as a composer, producer, engineer. Like first you have to define what make it means. But Let's face it, I have a day job and it's all consuming. It's a whole other career. And the only time I spend on music these days is learning to play the guitar, playing a handful of songs on piano. If I have a few ideas, putting them on the iPhone real quick, whatever, just so I don't forget them, write them down real quick, but not really doing anything with them. Like that's flip. That's that's like a complete inverse, 180 degrees from my previous career, which was all music, all the time, no business. So hmm. no day job, you know what I mean? None, none of that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I think sure. about that a lot too. Um, I don't, yeah. I, I, even like these, these couple songs I've written the last couple of days, I was even thinking like, you know, gosh, Taylor Swift should be singing one of these songs, but it's sort of like, Oh my God. Um, I just, I think it's just a lot of work to sort of get music like the the actual creation of of the music and producing it and making it sound great is so much work. But I do believe that um, I know talented people, and I'm you know pretty good. Uh, I mean, I say that humbly. Uh, that I I know that I can control the product and it it will sound good and it'll it'll have a vibe. But to sort of navigate the world of response and getting into this person's hand and getting it over to Taylor Swift and, and, and trying to get hired to, you know, write some songs with her. I mean, like that's a world that is so, I believe, but maybe I'm being too naive or insecure. Like, I just feel like that world is so beyond my reach um, that I don't even know where to begin. Uh, just like the whole business side of, of, of music and art is something that always sort of overwhelms me. Um, and, and scares me. And despite the fact that I, I think I write great songs and, and, and if they were, if I was in like the right group of, of famous songwriters and musicians, I, I think it's something I'd be doing for a living full time. And I don't know if it's, um, a shortcoming of mine, but I believe so much of, of making a living in art, there's and I, for better or for worse, I really think so much of it is just like luck and timing. Um, and not to say that luck and timing aren't involved in medicine or in law. You know, you, you go to law school and get your law degree and go to medicine and get your, your 
you know, degree in internal medicine or something, but there's something about the arts where it just feels more luck-driven, precarious, and and out of your control. And and I, for me, I think that's that makes me feel discouraged. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I just yeah, I think. Well, what I'll say, Eddie, what I respect about you is that despite all those things, you're still very prolific with your creativity. Um, and I think that's what you have to do as an artist, so, which is something I'm not doing, which I'm constantly thinking about. Hmm. Is Gosh, I'm spending all this time doing everything except being musically creative. That's That's like a broad stroke I took right there because like I said, I do spend a few hours a week, you know, making, playing, playing, mostly playing, learning when it comes to music. But, you know, my day job, uh, what I do for a living now takes a lot out of me. I apply a lot of energy into that. And there's not a whole lot left in the tank after I'm done doing that. And I've compartmentalized the fact that this is what I'm going to be doing now to provide for my family, try to, you know, catch up to my age when it comes to moving toward retirement, things like that, getting myself and my family into better financial positions, all that stuff as a commitment. And I'm happy about that. And I'm certainly using the creative bones that I have in my body in my day job. I do enjoy business. I do. And I do enjoy the rush that I get from doing business. I like working with the people that I work with. I like negotiating. I like all those things. They, they give me a sense of fulfillment. Nothing quite like, making music though, and being creative in that, that regard. But back to my point, which is if you're an artist, I think all, I'm not all, but most of what you should be doing in my humble opinion, and this is the advice I would give anyone who asks is to spend as much time creating as possible. And don't worry about all that other stuff. Um, marketing, having to be your own label or be your own business or having to get people to listen to it because if you're doing that while you're creating, I think those two things can adversely affect each other personally. And I think it's best to be focused on creativity. Once that creativity is done, if you want to pour your time into becoming a business person and marketing your stuff, that's totally fair. And that's some people set out to do just that. Um, but I agree that it's a daunting task to do both because it's hard to do both. It's hard to be both. Um, but look, I'll, I'll use sports as an analogy. It seems like a lot of the really successful athletes are also really good business people. Like mm. just for whatever reason, they seem to also excel in areas of business. So it makes me think, and, and the same holds true for some entertainers and musicians and things like that, um, where and I don't know how they learned and went from point A to point B necessarily, but those two things seem to run in tandem with each other. And I think that's important to understand is that making a living at the arts uh, requires time being spent on business and marketing. Um, it's just a requirement. And if an artist doesn't want to be doing that, that should be totally fair. But I think artists, and I'm guilty of the same thing or have been in the past, start to feel bad for themselves when they are not able to do that second piece that might help create more visibility and success on whatever they created. I, th I think that there's a lot of pressure that artists put on themselves in that particular area. 
And I, I don't know if those two things are, you know, I don't know if every artist out there has both of those things or is willing to do both of those things. And even if they do, will it equate to success? And but anyway, yeah. back to, I, I'm I'm losing my own no, but that I'm I, trying, trying to make. But yeah. <laughs> back to what you were saying, which is it's it's really hard work to do that. No, no doubt. But folks who start their own businesses, like I mean, I was in business for myself for a long time, and it was really really hard. So I, I don't know that that's any harder or easier than creating something and then trying to have it to sell it or any other product. I don't I don't know that the arts are unique in that way. I think business is hard and I think creating your own business is hard. And if you're in the business of creating your own product, whatever that is, intellectual, creative or other, it's going to be hard to get that off the ground. I don't think music or entertainment is different in that regard. Do you have to be luckier? Man, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Well, it- I guess one point, and then I'll ask you one other question um, before we go. I was just thinking, it's like when the line ends for for create, like sort of your example and the analogy that I talk about a lot is sort of creativity is a different animal than marketing. And I think the world that we live in now and the world you and I speak of is one effect of it is it is forcing more artists to do more of the marketing themselves. Uh, And I think for people that um, are photogenic, that like to be in front of the camera, that like attention, uh, or, you know, are insecure and, and, you know, thrive on the dopamine of social media, I think that particular type of person can potentially thrive in this, this social media heavy world. Now, um, because it's almost like, I think in their, in their brain or their head, it's almost like creativity and marketing. It's just all sort of one thing. It's almost like feeding their ego and feeding their, their desperation for attention all in sort of one pie. But then there's sort of the introverts, um, and I'll say insecure, but there's sort of a negativity around that. But I, I think you know, insecurity is, is is pretty normal with with just anybody, but especially with creative people. Um, you know, what you're talking about, what I talk about, it's sort of asking that type of person who may have spent three, four years on a piece of work, art, song, album, you know, then they're asked to put themselves out there and be on social media and, and release it. And it, it's it's a different part of their brain. Uh, but then, because people are so ADD now, like all that time, six months a year that you're spending on on marketing, uh, well, now you got to go back in and create a new piece of work or create a new record that could take a year or two to to. It's, I think it's it's creating a strange uh, world where it's. I guess I'll talk about the smile, like that new record that the members of Radiohead just put out. Um, I think it's really, really darn good. I mean, I, I, on a scale of one to 10, I'm sort of like in that 8.59. And I haven't heard a record like that from beginning to end that's, that's quote unquote inspired me for quite some time. Although I really liked the Ryan Adams record. I know you didn't like it as much as I, which is fine, but I guess I liked it because, um, 
it inspired me to pick up the acoustic guitar. Um, I, I just, I think when we're dealing with a world that's so ADD and there's so much content, and then we're asking artists to also do marketing, um, I think it creates this sort of blurry uh, world where like, we don't even know where one line begins and where one line ends. We don't even recognize when something's really good. I think there's a, I, this, I don't know if I'm projecting, but the world that I see, it's moving so fast where, like, does anybody even appreciate what the smile just put out? Does anybody uh, even, like, take a moment to just sort of listen to it for a few weeks? Or are we sort of on to the next thing? Or we're asking artists to do their own marketing, but, um, well, if you don't put out another thing, we're going to forget about you. So I think it's this this strange, obviously something that I think about a lot, but it's sort of this strange intersection of a lot of confusion. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I'll make the business analogy again, um, which is, well, it seems like the trend now in, in music, or it's been this way for a while, is, you know, artists need to do their own artist development, which was something that few decades ago, uh, there were folks out there whose sole purpose was to develop artists. And in large part, they were producers. And they were folks that liked to get creative with people and help people realize their creative potential, fully knowing that the business side of it, they weren't gonna be able to handle that. The artist wasn't gonna be able to handle that. They were gonna have to find some people with enough dollars and a business machine that was scalable, that could help the artist get the visibility that they needed, but it started with somebody believing hmm. in somebody else and helping them achieve their goals. Um, in business, similar thing, somebody like develops like a business idea of some kind and they go looking for capital uh, to help scale the business. And, you know, there's venture capitalists out there, you know, that will provide seed funds to help get a business off the ground. But a lot of people that are creating these products, like they may be, they may be, have good business minds. They may not, they, they may not know anything about business. They may have to learn like as they go. Um, but a lot of times they come in contact with people who are um, knowledgeable in the areas of scaling a business and making a product, if that's what you've developed accessible to the masses and, and to keep building up evidence and scaling up to a point where you can sell a lot of your products and have a business that goes into orbit and sort of kind of operates, you know, at scale or on its own. Well, nothing operates on its own, but it gets to that point where it's, it's happening at scale and it seems to keep mm -hmm. feeding itself. In music, it seems like in order for bigger money to get involved, with intellectual property, um, you have to figure out how to do a lot of that yourself at first. Hmm. And you have to get it kind of into orbit in a way yourself. And then folks that have more scalable business and scalable funds, they piggyback off of that foundation that the artists have created to scale it up bigger. Uh, from that point forward, but there's, it's not when it, when it comes down to like the bare bones at the beginning, like, oh my gosh, here's this artist. They have like amazing songs. I have to help this person like, you know, become known and amplify their work and get songs placed for them. Like that's, that doesn't happen that often from my understanding and probably a lot less than it used to. 
Um, but I think that's one of the key differences. Uh, and maybe it's not just music. Maybe it's all entertainment um, where it's not so cut and dry, where, you know, somebody just comes and finds you and plucks you out of obscurity and then develops you into being successful. I think a lot of that has to happen at the individual basis. And then once you achieve success, folks, they come knocking and yeah. they, they want to they wanna like be part of it and they want to maybe they have something to contribute at that point. Um, so I don't know how much of that change or how that is. Um, I don't know how much of that has to do with uh, some of the other philosophical points you brought up about, you know, the expectation. Um, uh, well, actually, I guess indirectly, it is an expectation. It, it is that the expectation of the artist is that uh, they have to find their own way to a point and then they can become more successful with help from outside parties to help scale them bigger instead of right. it being a collective effort. So, yeah, I guess the expectation is, is that if an artist really wants to achieve success, they have to think about building their own business with their own product. And building a business takes a lot of different types of people and a lot of different types of minds and a lot of different types of strategies. And it takes funds. It takes all those things. And how many people like have that? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, that makes it really hard in and of itself. <laughs> you know, it's, it's with sports, it's like, it's, it's a little bit more cut and dry because if, if you're, it's, it's pretty easy to prove if you're better than everybody on the mm. field, but it's not so easy to prove if your song is better than everybody else's in the room. I'll just use that as a silly first come to mind analogy. I, you know, it's weird. Like, I think about, um, yeah, I, there was a piano in our house. I started playing the piano. I may have asked you this, you know, 25 years ago. I just, I don't remember. Um, you know, I started playing the drums. You know, but it's weird. It's like you play music because it's an outlet or it's something you love to do. Or uh, I don't know. Music just had this sort of natural hypnotic effect on my body my brain I just it always was a great outlet but then like do you remember when you were sort of like I want to do this for a living was there something that sort of triggered that uh curiosity do, do you recall that and then I think you're I remember you being from Chicago like was the was the goal that I'm going to LA to 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 make a living doing this or do you remember that story yeah I do remember um I uh, was making music on a workstation, keyboard, you know, with a sequencer on it and a bunch of sounds. And I was sequencing uh, my own stuff. And um, I just was doing it for fun and I enjoyed it and it inspired me, kept me busy. Um, and that was the only reason I was doing it. I wasn't thinking about doing it for a living or anything like that. In my first year of college, uh, those sequences that I was making was, you know, it was getting some attention from my composition professor and some friends who I played it for. And, you know, folks were, you know, like you had said, they were giving me confidence and saying, oh, this is really good. You know, you should think about doing more of this. And I was like, okay, you know, and I would just do more of it. 
Um, and then that summer, I think it was my sophomore year of college, my father suggested, uh, because he knew an entertainment lawyer in, in Los Angeles, he suggested that for the summer, because I needed something to do for the summer, that I go out to Los Angeles and work with this entertainment lawyer on some more sequences. And he said he had access to a studio and he had access to an engineer. And those things had really limited meaning to me at the time, but right. it sounded cool. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And it was the first day in the studio with those folks uh, in the studio in North Hollywood, um, where I brought in my workstation that I had these sequences on and the engineer like took the, that sequence and he taught me how to get that stuff out of the keyboard and onto an analog piece of tape. Uh, and he would record it and he was like starting to like make it sound good. And in that moment, when I heard the stuff that I made on the sequencer come to life like that in the studio, like around all that equipment, that's when I was like, oh yeah, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do for a living, do for a living. And it's not really an accident that I ended up being a recording engineer out of that and finding a living because the one thing, um, that was that being a recording engineer had in common with me having my compositions, you know, find its way into the speakers and all that was that I got to be in that environment by doing that. And it was in that environment where I had that realization that I wanted to make my living and spend all my time in that environment. Like at that point, I wanted to spend every single hour in the recording studio that I, every waking hour. Yeah. It's, you know, you were always, um, I guess my last point I was just thinking, I think certain engineers and, and this, um, the guy that mastered or, or mixed my last record and there is this sort of, um, gosh, I want to, I'm going to say the word nerd and I don't mean that in any sort of negative way. I mean it in the sense that music has this sort of like fluidity to it where it's sort of like, um, it's, it's very liquid but ironically, music, there is this mathematical, and I think that's where I do rely on other people because I, I don't have it as much as I wish I did. There is sort of this like mathematical, systematic way that sounds work together. And I think you were always really good at that. Like not only mixing, but but also like the keyboard and sequencing and MIDI, they're, they're these sort of tools to music that... I don't think just anybody, like, you know, I play the piano, I strum the guitar, and I've gotten better at, at learning and, and manipulating sounds, but uh, that's kind of stuff always sort of came natural to you, and or at least it felt that way. And it isn't just like playing the guitar or playing the piano. It is sort of this very close examination of, of sort of like the chart of music that... I think a lot of people can't do, and I think it does take a certain sort of brain to be good at. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, the irony though is that like math was something I was basically a failure at huh. academically, and music theory, which are the tools you're given, you know. Uh, when you're learning to be a composer and studying music composition, contemporary music composition, you're, you're exposed to music theory and learning how music works from a formal perspective, I found to be like not interesting at huh. all. Interesting. And boring, and I boring. never would have thought that. 
Yeah, I didn't really find, and I didn't do particularly well in my theory classes, but I was a good composer, and that's how I made my way through college um, with a degree in composition, and I was able to achieve that was by, at the end of the day, writing good compositions. And of course, I used some of the theoretical things that I learned in college, but it wasn't like I was in there like loving it, loving learning it. In fact, I had people like telling me, well, you should learn this stuff and then forget it because it could actually ruin your creativity. Now, I don't know that again, that's painting with a broad brush. And I don't know that I would say that that ruins your creativity. I think you need to compartmentalize it for what it is and realize that music theory is a tool, just like math is a tool for engineers. And you still need to be creative and you still need to come up with things that are inspiring that other people want to pay attention to. Like if you play me this really theoretically advanced piece of music, there's a really good chance that it's not going to sound like music at all. You know, and it's it could be like some one of these weird pieces you hear in academia. Academia. One professor I had my when I was doing my graduate degree called it boink music because it's like it's there's no melody, there's no like there's nothing to latch on to. But if you look at it from a theoretical standpoint, you could find some things that are kind of advanced, kind of maybe even groundbreaking. But if you play the piece of music for somebody, like they very likely may not respond to it, or they might not have an emotional reaction to it. Maybe that's not the point, you know, I, I don't know. But the point is that I'm making is that those things are tools. And um, I think it's important to use those tools to make or to create things, of course, and to defer to them, because if you're struggling, they can actually help a lot. But relying on them exclusively to make good music, since that's what we're talking about. I don't, I don't know if those two things are you know, I don't know how, how reliant they are on, on each other. I guess to be like, you, like it's a language. So I guess to speak language well, you have to know a lot about language. So to perform uh, or to compose music well, you need to know a few things about music for sure. And how you learn them, I think, can be really variable. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was good at those things musically, like in terms of um, being able to execute, I, I suppose, on them. But when I was, I can't say that learning them formally was interesting to me. It really, it really wasn't. Yeah. Well, this was good, man. I, uh, my, uh, appreciate you making some time and talking. And uh, these are areas that I, I don't know. I just, I've been thinking a lot about and. Um, yeah, it's, I think hopefully you'll get to a place where you um, get to start putting some of these ideas beyond just like on the phone and maybe, you know, make one of them a little bit bigger than just being a voice memo. Yeah, I'd love to flush out some recordings again one day. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's for this point in my life right now, it's, it's not the priority and that's... What's that? Right now it's golf. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's golf. I, I mean, I have so many hobbies. It's like golf is a hobby for sure. Um, maintaining an aquarium reef tank, which was a hobby I used to do as a teenager, oh, yeah. but I, I didn't, I stopped doing it for years and then it became a pandemic hobby, so so to speak. And now, now I'm back into it. And, you know, I spend a fair amount of time, you know, 
dis disconnecting from work from the day job and um you know spending spending time doing that you know it's it's tough like i said it's tough to find the energy uh when you put so much of yourself into something mm -hmm. for so long every day it's not so easy to find the energy to do more than that so whatever it can give yourself uh whatever can give people a relief from the normal day-to-day -day, i think is going to have the therapeutic the desired therapeutic effects so um I think for me to feel free enough to sit down and work on music, like flush stuff out, compose full on pieces, make an album. It's all stuff I really want to do, but I think I'm going to have to be past the day job in order for that to be possible for me, yeah. which means I will have to make a decision to not have a day job in order to do that. And I think to make that decision, given the choices that I've made, it's just going to have to happen later in life. It's pretty much as simple as that. But I think what, I, what I'm proud of myself about is that I've become, at least I think on the surface, okay with that, which has been really important for my health mentally Definitely. and physically. Well, it was good to see you. I'll, uh, I'll send you these, these photos. Please do, man. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, I hope this is productive. I hope your listeners uh, take interest in it. And um, Some tough topics, though, to talk about, man. I, I, I mean it's tough to find the words and the thoughts around them because they're, they're, they're deep subjects and uh, not easy to, to rationalize or to make sense of. Yeah. I don't know if it's um, unhealthy or I certainly don't, you know, because I talk about it on my podcast, one could think as they listen, Oh, these, I got it. It's like fucking exhausting thinking about these things, you know, and I don't think about them, that often, but I certainly contemplate um, the world and, and sort of my place in the world and, and, and finding joy and meaning and, and uh, making the most of my limited time here. And, um, and then, yeah, just, you know, releasing art into the, this dizzy world is, uh, I, I find it confusing and complicated. And it's just things that I, I think a lot about, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, what does it, what does it take to get somebody to care? You know, I think about that too. You know, it's sort of like, you know, when does somebody care about uh, a product, something, you know, is it, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a tough one too, man. But the outlet that you have in creating stuff and the feeling you get from completion, like I remember what that, what that feels like. Um, it's cathartic. Like that's perfect description for it. I think and yeah. that catharsis is really healthy. It's really therapeutic. Um, it's fulfilling. It's really, well, it's cathartic. I think that's, that's really important. The validation piece, not so easy. Um, I'm not sure in the end how powerful certain types of validation are or are not, but I do know for at least for myself, it's really powerful when, you learn that just one person was moved by something you've done or created or put out in the world, I think is a really great feeling because that's, you've obviously done something for another person. I think that's what it, what it comes down to. And that's, that's really powerful. Yeah. And I'm sure you get that from teaching, you know, you teach, you taught yoga. So oh, yeah. I mean, it's like that's yeah. got to be, you must feel fulfilled when you do that, see people's bodies change, see their psychology change. Yeah, I get a lot of joy from all of these things, you know. Um, yeah, I, I used to, 
Yeah, I just used to be riddled with insecurity, which is just such a like, when I think back, it's like, fuck, what a waste, what a waste of energy, you know? I mean, it's like I used to think, oh, an artist can only do one thing, you know. You're a singer-songwriter and that's it. You know, a true artist is only doing, you know, passionate about one thing. And it's just, I don't know, it's just such a um, buzzkill. It's it's so myopic to, to look at, you know, art that way. And so I just, it's like, ah, I've got lots of things I want to try and explore and express. And yeah, the, even, you know, DJing at 2 o'clock in the morning to a room was like, like, that was, I never thought I would be a DJ. I, I, I was, I almost looked down upon DJs like it wasn't an art form. And then I, I just like 10 years ago, I was sort of, I went to a set, um, forgot her name, but the way she was manipulating the music on stage, it just like, it blew me away. I, I was like, Whoa, this is, this is a whole other art form that I, I had my, I was pointing my nose up at. I was just like, God, how ignorant of me. It's just, yeah, it's just, so I just think that, that you just art expression is, is just fluid and, and just. Find a way to express yourself. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool, man. Cool, dude. Well, um, I, as always, it's it's great to see you and reflect and talk about all this stuff. I appreciate you making the time. Thanks, man. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, next time uh, I see you, hopefully it'll be on the golf course. Let me know, man. I'm always down to play golf. Done. What, when do you normally, can you, can you play like during the week or does it have to be a weekend thing? I would have to take the day off of work to be able to play during the week because unless it was up here, like I could okay. meet, I could meet somewhere up in this area like for four? sure during the week. Could you, yeah, I, I could go, I could skip out early and, you know, probably get somewhere by four thirty. you know? Okay. Um, and most twilight up here starts at four. So that's, it's a good, that's a good time for me up here. But if, if we were to go somewhere else, it would have to be on a weekend. Okay. Well, I, I, I would probably meet you then at like 4, 4.30. That's what we would do. Okay. Cool. Great. I'm yeah. be totally down. Done. Cool. Well, you'll, you'll be hearing from me. Okay, man. Have a good rest of your uh, Sunday and uh, appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon. You too, Eddie. Thanks, Thanks man. How long did you want me come out and visit me today? Like pigeons learn to sing